Oh, blink the lights. Okay. When our men's breakfast right now, we are, uh, and we got one a little over a week from now coming up, we're doing classic, some classic sermons that different ones of us have caught from different people. And we heard a great sermon last month with reference to uh, MacArthur. We're going to hear Vadi Bachman is going to, he's got, the guy's a great preacher. Those of you who know, know who I'm talking about, he's going to be our guy for uh, the next uh, men's breakfast um, coming up real soon. And I think, so, I, I think there's some gals going, doing breakfast for us again, so I just want to thank them in advance. Well, we got a sermon this morning we're, we're diving into, and th- that's the book of Ecclesiastes. This, this, is a, this is a sermon, isn't it? The preacher, Solomon. He's got a very important sermon for us to catch. Thank you. You're continuing to tell me. You've read through it. Read through it again as we're studying it, uh, studying it together. And I think that uh, if I would ask you your favorite food this morning, if I'd ask you your favorite food, how many of you would raise your hand and say broccoli? Right? One person. Okay. Just had to be one. Right? How many of you would say broccoli is good for us? How many would raise your hand now, right? This book is broccoli. It's good for us. It's good for us. And it's good for us to read it and think about its message. Well, let's dive into it. Let's ask God to to help us uh, this morning to understand more because we're getting right into the text today and see again what the preacher, Koheleth, has to say to us, um, most of all, what God has to say to our hearts today, this whole day. Amen? So, Father, start right in our hearts right now. Thank you for the cleansing work of the blood of Christ. Thank you for granting us grace by your Spirit to hear and to be more than just mere hearers. Thank you for what you've done to us and bringing us into a miracle. The church, the body of Christ, a spiritual family that is designed for us to be part of that which you're building. Building us up personally through the word and ministry of one another by the work of the Spirit but most of all, building us up through the Word of God as we hear it and read it and learn it, study it, hear it preached. It's our bread of life. We're in great need continually to set our affection on things above, to have our minds renewed and transformed, have our hearts cleansed. So bless our time together this morning as we dive in now to the text this day, and we'll give you thanks for it in Christ's name, and everyone would say together, amen, amen. Amen. Okay, here's our chapter outline this morning. We're going to get through 4 through 11, Lord willing. We've got the main theme that is presented to us, who's the preacher in verse 1, the theme presented to us in verse 2. It's very clear. We've, We've done all the background, or hopefully we have, and just getting a handle on the book as a whole. Then in verse 3, we have the, the argument that relates to his theme 
in verse 2, and then when we get to 4 through 11, we have the initial evidence of what he's saying is the main theme. And the main theme is right there, isn't it? Verse 2, the words of the preacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, and we know that's who? That's our guy Solomon. And here's the theme of the book and the theme of his sermon. Five times he says the word. I think somebody said to me, you have to say things six times before they sink in. Well, he's got five of them right here, right? And the theme is vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All, all is vanity. Boy, the Hebrew text here is strong. You know, superlative construction is the idea. Stated emphatically. The end of the verse, we have what's called a singular absolute. What is he saying? That life is futile, life is fleeting, life is meaningless, life is empty. Both futile and fleeting. We've seen that from just looking at the main theme in the last uh, couple of weeks. We sure know that it's fleeting, do we not? For all of us, Psalm 103, 15 and 16, as for man, his days are like grass as a flower of the field. So he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it's no more and its place acknowledges it no longer. And we are certainly understand, and he's going to develop that, the reality of vanity in terms of the fleeting of life and the futility in terms of his his quest for meaning and purpose without getting above the sun as we say it. Uh, Wearsby has a very uh, simple, we've gone through a whole number of different explanations of vanity, but Wearsby always has his own way of saying, remember, this, this futility of, of life in, under the sun in a fallen world, whatever disappears quickly, leaves nothing behind, and doesn't satisfy whatever is left after you break a soap bubble. That's pretty profound, amen? There it is. All is vanity. Everywhere, everything. Wow, how do you get that? Because he's asking this main question then in verse 3. But before we get there, I have a quiz for me from you. For me from you, so that we remember what is that main emphasis that's going on in this particular book. And so you've got, to fig, you've got to fill in the blank and let me know that you know what the book of Ecclesiastes is as we keep working through it. So we remember Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes later in life as a, don't say anything, against walking through life on the path of human wisdom. How many know the word that belongs in there? Most all of you, good. Everybody say it. As a what? As a warning against walking through life on the path of human wisdom. So it's reminding us of where people are at without the Lord. And we can't be reminded of that enough. Can you say amen to that this morning? We can't be reminded of that enough. We can't live on our own, if I can say it uh, just humbly, we can't live on our own spiritual bubble. So here's that great theme that he's crying out here, and then he asks that question concerning it in verse 3. But just a warning for us a moment, for a moment, and that's this. This idea of life being empty and lacking purpose and lacking meaning. I want us to remind us this morning, if you and I, who profess Christ, 
if we're not growing and if we're not serving and if we're not seeking to be a blessing to others and seeking to be a witness for Christ, the, the, the warning is against finding yourself living like an unbeliever. We call that different things. We can say that walking in the flesh. But when that's happening in our lives, we, we can say, boy, the Christian life is really boring. And we're going to get to that very theme that he's dealing with in this text. But it isn't the Christian life. It's usually the Christian. When we're not, when we're not living for the Lord, we can find ourselves the very thing that Solomon is saying here that was going on in his life that God deemed it by the Spirit that he would record this particular book and remind us of what life is like. Well, verse 3, verse 3, there's our, our main argument. For the whole book, really, what advantage, what profit, what gain does man have in all of his work, all of his labor, all of his effort, which he does, key words, next three words, what? Under the sun. There it is. And it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? What advantage is all of this? What benefit? What gain in all of his effort and activity at the end of his journey? This, this plays a key part to the rest of the entire book. It's stated, uh, just stated for us various ways, and I just took a number of of the different guys that have uh, solid exegetical commentaries. And I just wrote, I, I just, uh, wrote down for us, or got it on the overhead, different ways that people are saying what Solomon is saying and what he's meaning in verse 3. In the long run, where's the proof of any significance of all of my life's labor and achievements? Solomon is speaking of all human effort and activity and the question of permanent value or significance. What will I leave behind that will count as a lasting monument to all of my effort? Three more quotes here. After all my blood, sweat, and tears and labor, what have I achieved that matters? You spend your life working. What do you have to show for it? I thought about all that I had done and how hard I'd worked in doing it, and I realized it didn't mean a thing. Well, that's pretty empty, is it not? But that's what he's asking in verse 3. Look at it with me again. What advantage? And it's a rhetorical question, and he's, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Well, where do you get that, Solomon? Let's think about that. It caused me to remember before we came to PBC and the seminary days. We lived in a bottom half of a farmhouse up there in Winona Lake, and Deborah and I hadn't been there for decades, and we made a trip this past fall. Go back there. Boy, how everything changed. Glad I haven't, but everything else had, had, had changed. And it took us a little while to find our way around, and we, first of all, we wanted to find that farmhouse. So we knew where that turn was out there by that farm and fleet, and and, and got there, and boy, they changed the house, but we were, there it is. There's the bottom half of it. But another thing that I was looking to see was across the street was Pete. They built a beautiful house, and he had quite a business there. Um, 
an auto body business, a number of guys working for him, and I got to meet Pete and talk with him a little bit, and he made a profession of faith. I'm not sure how real it was to him, but it was an opportunity, and he was so absorbed in his business. He told me one time that he worried all, all the time about the fact that he, in the auto body uh, business, that one of his vehicles wouldn't be prepared properly and he'd lose his reputation as being the best in town and, and everything else. And he said that he would eat breakfast in this morning, in the morning, but by the time that he got to work and checking on everybody, he was sick to his stomach. And one of his problems was his accountant was telling him he had to do something else with his money. So he doesn't just, you know, doesn't just sit, whatever. And he didn't care about that and built a new home and drove a big Lincoln and everything else. And, and so I wanted to see what happened to that business. So right across from us where we had that uh, apartment, we're going to seminary. You didn't know what's there now? Oh, I was sure that thing was going to be a big, it was a beautiful building. You know what's there now? A field and weeds. Field and weeds. I remember him saying they had two daughters. He said, I don't think any of my, our kids are interested in whatever. What, bring, what was the accomplishment of it all? What, what end to it all? That's, that's, what, that's what he's asking right here. Now, there are three absolutes that I want you to think about when we're talking about that reality of verse 3 that's mentioned some 30 times, I think 29 in the book, under the sun. So it's keeping us here understanding this is life without God. Everybody say it with me. Life without Life without God, okay? This idea. Number one, we need to remember the impact of the fall on man and all of creation is under the sun. I mean, it's true of us as well, but that's the idea here. And Romans 8 talks about the creation uh, uh, experiencing futility. The curse affected man, alienated from God. Likewise, the, the, the reality of the world is under the curse. All of that under the sun. Secondly, the fact that life under the sun for mankind is temporal. That's implied in verse 3. At the end, see, at the end with the advantage of all of his work. So it's implied there's going to be an end to life. And that's one of the problems throughout the book. What about at the end? So we have the impact of the fall. Life under the sun is temporal. And third, human human inability to answer the questions of verse 3 on his own, by, by oneself, trying to answer these questions without revelation, without God, without God revealing to us purpose and meaning. And remember, we just started saying whenever we ask that question, everybody wants to raise their hand and say, I know what my purpose in, purpose in life is and why I'm here and where I'm heading and so forth. We have that because we know the Lord and because we have the Word of God. But Solomon is below that. He's lost sight of that. So here's his, here is his uh, initial evidence that all is vanity in verses 4 through 11. Does your Bible show us that it's it somewhat reveals to us its poetry? This is one of the five books in our Bible uh, that is uh, poetry and in beautiful, beautiful, rhythmic Hebrew poetry in verses 4 through 11. He's expressing this vanity. Here's his argument. And the argument is with reference to everything is in this cycle, in this world, and nothing changes. 
he shows us that while everything is changing, really nothing, it seems, changes. Or as somebody said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Or as we say in Hoosier land, goes around, comes around. We do that, right? There's this inscrutable repetition of the natural world, including humanity. And the paraphrase here, verse 4, that he's, he introduces this, um, well, let's just read it. Don't need a paraphrase. A generation goes and a ge- generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He's going to talk about how. Uh, I believe MacArthur's footnote has a little statement, permanent impermanence. How do you like that? Right? Permanent impermanence. Generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You're born. Somebody's entitled this section, same old, same old. You're born. You live. You make the uh, obituary column at the end of the journey, right? Maybe your name's on a stone. Verse 11 is going to tell us, and then you're going to be soon forgotten. How is that for the gift of encouragement this morning? Amen? And if you go to that uh, cemetery like the one that my grandpa and grandma are, are buried in, they've got a number of very old, old, old stones. And you'll notice on many of these old stones that literally the name and the dates are eroded right off of the stone. That's what he's dealing with here. Generation goes and a generation comes. When my dad was living and Isaiah was a little guy, my dad was, would take him aside because he's the last Kotki at this time. And he would say, all right, my dad would say to Isaiah, all right, my name is Robert, my dad's name is Edward, his name is such, and his name is this, and his name is this. <laughs> I reminded Isaiah of that the other day. I said, do you remember them all? He said, no. I said, thanks a lot. <laughs> right? generation goes there it is telling the kids the other day that I had a great uncle um, Uncle Doc he was a dentist and I was explaining to them that he didn't like kids and I said he 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 looked like and he acted like W.C. Fields now if you know anything about W.C. Fields get away from me kids you bother me right and as I'm explaining this to the kids, they said, that's interesting, but they said, who is W.C. Fields? No matter how popular you are, it's going to be gone. That, that, that's what he's driving home here. Man is transient because what's he saying in, in the book as a whole? Death is coming, but nature is permanent. And individuals and families and nations and empires, they rise and they fall, but the world remains the same. And the Christian wants to say, until. Until Christ returns. Amen? But that's what he's dealing with here. So here they go. Come and go. Solomon is showing us the weariness of our existence. He's going to get to that verse 8. When we leave God, 
out of the picture. As we were, uh, as we were watching that sermon by MacArthur, he mentioned that somebody asked him, just concerning the world and cycles and so forth, somebody asked him if he believed in, in global warming, and he said, absolutely, yes. And then he pointed out Second Peter 3, where it says, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. <laughs> there is real global warming. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> Associated with, with Christ, with his, with his coming. So here, here we have this, this declaration of that in verse 4. He begins really his, his ev- evidence concerning all the, the cycle, the ongoing, unchangeable reality that's taken place. And he, he right away conveys to us, but there's an end concerning man. Generations come and go, but the earth just remains forever. And then he drives this home in verses five through seven initially by using three different, uh, three different illustrations. And that is the daily rising and setting of the sun, the constant of the wind, and the reality of, of, of water and, and, and the change uh, with reference of the, of the moisture in, in the sea, verse seven. So we've got the examples that he's presenting to us of the earth remaining the same and yet ever-changing with reference to the setting and rising of the sun. Verse 5, the sun rises and sun sets and hastening to its place and rises there again. And you remember the Bible speaks with reference to the language of appearance. The sun, do you know the diameter of the sun is 864,000 miles and it's just one of the tiny little lights within the universe. Wow. But there it is, day in and day out. We just take it for granted. Came up this morning, did it not? Blowing toward the south, then uh, turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. We've got that high and low pressure that takes place and bring wind that's going on and everything related to the constant of the wind that takes, that takes place. Then verse 7, there's another of the cycles of life. He says, all the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow. There they flow again. Grew up near the Mississippi River, not, not a lake, a river, fact, grew up near where and where some of my family is yet, you know this, uh, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Wisconsin River, big river at that point, and the Mississippi flowing in together. I understand this past year that there was flooding uh, there in Prairie du Chien. There's always people who love to build a place right near the river, and then, then it floods, <laughs> and they wonder why <laughs> they built there, correct? And you can go and sit next to the river, and there's a spot down there by the river the one edge of the town that's uh, got walls that are built up to try to handle some of the flooding, and, and they have different events that's going on there, and there's benches, and you can just watch the water. Uh, I would say that the, um, that the width of the river at that place is probably at least a half a mile. And you watch it, and there it is. And you, you're just watching millions of gallons of water just flow by you. 
and the current. And so you take a big stick and you throw it in that river, and there it goes. There's it's gone, flowing, and catch it a month later down at New Orleans, <laughs> flowing into the sea. And then next season, if they have a lot of snow in the north, and then it builds in the river and things flood all over again, ceaseless flow of the river. So he's just showing us these cycles. Now, okay, we get it, because he's going to say in verse, all things are wearisome. But before we get there, let's just stop as believers and ask, well, what do you see when you observe the sun and wind and river? You see it from a whole different perspective, do you not? You see the faithfulness of God in this world. You see the power of God in all of that. You see the creator God. Whole different view. And we forget that at various times. We'll visit the Grand Canyon and go, wow! You know? We see him. We, we see the reality. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. It's so worthy to look at. We see how this all keeps going on. How this all is held together. How this all is not just... We're, we're not just flying off of this planet into space or things coming to an end or the, or the sun uh, flying off farther away and everything freezing and dying. It's just, a, it's just an absolute marvel of evolution, is it not? Amen? Just seeing anybody awake there, okay? Colossians chapter 1, just think about that. You know, the, the, the agency of creation is the second person of the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And his preeminence is presented to us in, in the first chapter of Colossians and just mind-blowing. The one in whom we have forgiveness of our sins, chapter 1, verse 15 now. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. And all things have been created through him, and what? Oh, he and be all glory to the Lamb. He is before all things, and in him all things beautiful hold together or exist. We see Christ. We see God. We see his faithfulness. We see his omnipotence. And then we sing, we sing songs like this, do we not? I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I see the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The mountain shines full at his command and all the stars obey. There's not a planet or a flower below, but makes thy glories known, and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. Why, all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. And everywhere that man can be, thou, God, art present there. That's good stuff, is it not? Amen. That was also a petition. Sing that real soon, okay? Number 59. There. Sing the power of God. Yet verse 8 now. Verse 8. All of a sudden, there is this all things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. Tiresome. Believer sees the faithfulness of God. Solomon here, because of his condition, 
looks at all, well, maybe I approach it another way, okay? Another way. What does Solomon have in his 40 years as king available to him, available to, him to make him happy, to bring him pleasure, to entertain him? Whereas he can find purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. What does he have available to him? Anything and everything. Anything and everything. Leopold says we get to, we get to verse 8. And all things bear to him the stamp of monotonous sameness. Yeah. J.D. Akins makes this statement concerning verse 8. Note how Solomon contends that our existence is full of weariness. He gives three behaviors to parallel the sun, wind, and the sea. He contends that we cannot say enough, see enough, or hear enough. We can't say enough words to find meaning in the midst of this monotony. The eye will never be able to see it all. There are always more sights to see, experiences to take in, stories to listen to. There's always one more pleasure to seek, another experience that doesn't last. And the ear has never heard it. There's always one more gossip spread song to hear, joke to listen to, or flirtation of words to enjoy. Nothing we can say, see, or hear can bring meaning to this redundancy. Yeah. More than one writer notes how Solomon has found himself experiencing the greatest dilemma of life under the sun. That he's bored. That he's bored. Because he's lost sight. He's lost sight of his creator. All things are wearisome, verse 8. All things are wearisome. And yet, let's not lose sight, Augustine's statement, right? Let's not lose sight of this. We'll come back to this from time to time, will we not? Great quote. Say it with me. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And we can even profess to know him and yet become wearisome. One writer says, you can almost see him yawning right there. Wanting to take a nap. He's just seen all of it. And in his incredible wisdom. I want to talk about parenting for a moment. Do you realize, do you and I realize? Sure we do. We understand how our children came into the world just like us. How they've come into this world believing that God created parents to make them happy. Right? And many uh, fall into that trap that that's exactly what they have done, become child-centered parenting. And so in seeking to make our children happy, being sure that they are, uh, that they are entertained and they are uh, busy in, in their uh, desire for things 24-7, they get the newest gadget, the newest game, newest toys, newest video, newest tennis shoes, whatever, so that they will be happy by being entertained and fulfilled. There's a problem. They get bored. You don't think so. Look at their closet. It's full of stuff they're not interested in anymore. Anybody want to say amen to that? See, how did you get to parents? I'm not done. I'm coming to you. Okay? But there it is. I uh, 
had a tooth pulled this week. Be careful with me. I'm a little cranky, okay? I went to the, uh, get, get it pulled, and I went into the waiting room, and a beautiful family came in. They had three kids, just beautiful family. They came in. Mom and Dad pulled the phones out, and the kids all pulled their gadget out. And as soon as I got there, I had to be there a half an hour early. When I got there, the first thing they told me was that they're going to be a half an hour behind. So we sat there together. They're on the other side. I'm sitting here. And I never saw a head go up. Entertained. Entertained. Why is that a big deal? Well, do you and I understand that our children like us, just like us, were not created for themselves. And it's easy for you and I to be working against the God of heaven and his purpose for their lives. What would that be? That they might know God. They might serve God. They might live for God and know the blessing of life that comes and fulfillment from knowing him. Amen? And so as parents and grandparents who believe it is their purpose in life to spoil the grandkids, amen? We're going to leave a spiritual heritage. We're going to leave a spiritual heritage that goes on beyond this life. It is bored seeing all of this. And we can get caught in where Solomon was, where he's trying to find all of this in somewhere other than the very purpose to which he was created and the one who made him king. Heaven forbid that your child would ever be bored and unentertained. That's why when we go to the restaurant, they walk in, if somebody has a toddler, they put them in the chair and then they hand them their phone so that they can be good or else if not, they're going to raise Cain in the restaurant and don't get me going. Amen? Okay? We'll just stop right there. But it's true. It's, everybody say it's true. It's true. Crichton says it's true. He says, in other centuries, human beings wanted to be saved or improved or freed or educated. But in our century, they want to be... The great fear is not of disease or death, but of boredom. Now, just stop for a moment. Think about this. How is AI going to increase that boredom? When everything is thought for us, and now in a highly mechanized world, everything now is done for us. Wow. Wow. Think about that. Both in our century, they want to be entertained. The great fear is not, not of disease or death, but of boredom. A sense of time on our hands, a sense of nothing to do. Whenever I think about this, I think about all the time I, I, I spent on the farm with my grandpa, and I thought of, of what it would ever be like going up to my grandfather and saying, I'm bored. Oh, would he put me to work. A sense of time on our hands, a sense of nothing to do, a sense that we are not amused. But where will this mania for entertainment end? Solomon got caught in that. Did he not? Our Frank... Uh, I can't pronounce his last name, wrote the book Searching for Meaning, said, mankind is doomed to facilitate eternally between the two extremes of distress and boredom. And in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, 
he says to us in verse 8, the reality that nothing is fulfilling, nothing satisfying. Verse 9, he says there's nothing new. And in verses 11, he says there's nothing remembered. Wow. What a, what a situation, the vanity of nothing new. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear fulfilled with hearing. Unfulfilled. Going on and on in that reality. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. We say, well, no, wait a minute. There sure is because I'm after it. There's a new smartphone coming out all the time, right? But it's still a phone, right? Still is. I I think D. Gibson in his excellent little book, uh, Living Life Backwards, if I think I have the title right. He he has a good comment on that idea. He says, a new government still a government, and we're all familiar with those. A revolution heralds a new idea, and we've seen it all before. A new baby is still a baby, and the world has always been full of them. Even landing on the moon is still a form of adventure and exploration that has been with us since humans have walked the earth. Indeed, space travel is a good example of precisely the preacher's point. He doesn't mean nothing new. Things are never invented in the world, for clearly that's not true. He means there is nothing new we can ever discover to break the cycle and to satisfy us. Whenever we conquer our solar system, humanity will then try to conquer the galaxy beyond it. We never have our fill, and that basic human impulse that led us to space in the first place has been already in the ages before us. There is nothing new about humanity in the unfolding of all of its progress. The end of verse 9, again, here's the key, nothing new under the sun. Under the sun is that idea. Here's a good quote concerning that. The craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. Nothing new. Wearsby had an interesting little quote about somebody coming up to him, and they had a whole new idea of ministry in the local church. They had a plan, a plan and a program. Say, they got to show it with you. And uh, Wearsby said, okay, I'll, I'll listen. And, and he shared it with them, and Wearsby said, yeah, we've been doing that in Youth for Christ for the last 40 or 50 for 50 years. Nothing new, nothing new. You all know the story about me waiting in line to talk to Dr. Wiersbe. Spoke at our seminary when last year before I was just wrapping up there to come to PBC, all excited about that. So I stood in line for about 25 minutes to finally get to talk to him. And I went up to him and said, Dr. Wiersbe, I'm going to uh, my first pastorate. Now, I, I, I want to I want to be faithful. I want to do well. Give me, give me the secret. Give me the secret of, you know, being successful. He said, sure. Love your people, say your prayers, and study your Bible. Next. <laughs> Nothing new, is there? That's exactly what he said. And he did say next. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. 
Thank you, Dr. Wearsby. <laughs> Love your people. Say your prayers. Study the word. Hmm. Perhaps most wearisome of all, oh, we've got a few minutes yet, is down there in verse 11. Uh, there, is noth- there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later. Let me read that again. I didn't read that well. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will still come later. He is really cycling back to verse 4. Generation goes, generation comes. Generation comes, generation goes. Paraphrase, we forget the past and we don't know the future. Mm. John Phillips points this out, noting the, the old saying that proves, proved this, nothing proves this more than history. You know, the saying about history. Uh, nothing proves that we um, failed. How, how's the saying go? The only thing we learn from history is that what? We never learn from history. There it is. There it is. So, look at all that's going on, this unchanging, and yet, and something does change, because generations go and come. There is an end to all of this, and he gets to that, he gets back to that, he gets back to that problem. This is, this is going to come to end. But when we think about, and let's close with this, when we think about the fact, wait a minute, let me just get us verse 12 and following, we can answer all of these things if we, if we really have incredible human wisdom. We can answer all the great problems of the universe on our own, right? I caught a little bit of an interview by, I think his name is Pierce Morgan or Pierce something. Did I get that name right? Yeah. He's interviewing Richard Dawkins. You know who Richard Dawkins is? He wrote The God Delusion. He's a very well-known, highly educated teaching and university um, atheist. And uh, that the interview is just pressing him, but because he, he's he's asking him the question about the beginning, and he says, "What what what does?" And I wrote it down. He asked him, "What does?" Because before the beginning, uh, Dawkins is saying there was nothing, and he's asking him, well, "What does nothing look like?" What does nothing look like? And he goes off and, no, no, I'm asking, how, how, how do you explain that of nothing? It must be an ultimate cause. And, and so his answer was this. Well, yes, the answer to everything is a self-replicating molecule. That's where it all began. That's where it all began. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. That's his answer. If I have all wisdom... And so Solomon is going to go there in verse 12 and following in all of his wisdom and everything that he knew on a human level trying to answer the real questions of life and leaving God out of it. Aren't you thankful we have the the word of God? Amen? Amen. We know who we are, where we came from, why we're here, our purpose in life, and where we're heading and the hope that we have. So nothing is new, but we say, yes, something is new. It's called the new creation. And if any man be in Christ, what? His life is changed and brand new. 
and has the hope of heaven, has purpose in life, has sin forgiven, and has meaning, meaning purpose in why we're here and our desire in light of being new creations and having the hope of heaven as much as anything else we want to take as many people there with us as we can through the gospel amen let's pray father how we thank you how we thank you for making yourself known to us and i ask that that is the thanks of every heart here uh, present right now and today that you've made yourself known to us you brought us from light from darkness to light from death to life because we've heard the message that Jesus Christ came lived a sinless life died a sacrificial death and defeated death in the resurrection and ever lives to make intercession for us and is coming back one day. And that based on that life, we have life now. We love life. We enjoy life because we enjoy you. We enjoy what it is to know your blessings and our choices and our, and our growing and our opportunities. Yes, life is not easy under the sun. But you are good, and you are worthy, and you've made a way for us to not only know you, but one day be in your presence and to worship you better than we could ever imagine. And you are so worthy of it. Worthy is the Lamb. Praise God. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Look at that clock, 946.